Sweet Jesus, my Savior, you are my faithful friend. You made me, you know me, you see my every sin. And my soul is amazed by this gift of your grace and these arms that take me in. Sweet Jesus, my Savior, you are my faithful friend. Sweet Jesus, my shelter, you are my faithful friend. The refuge that I run to when my world comes closing in. Why should I be afraid when I know I am saved by these arms that take me in? Sweet Jesus, my shelter, you are my faithful friend. Jesus, sweet Jesus. My shepherd, shepherd. you are my faithful friend. You hold me, you lead me, I'll follow till the end. Now once more I will say on that beautiful day when your arms take me in, sweet You are my faithful friend, sweet Jesus, my Savior. You are my faithful friend. There are two texts that are of scripture reading this morning. The first one is Daniel 3, verses 3 through 6. And Daniel 3 says, So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the... Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. And the second text is Revelation 13, verses 15 through 17. And that says, 
He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast, so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. Before Andrew gets up here to talk, I just want to apologize for our screen. Um, it's not his fault, and uh, there's nothing we can do, unfortunately, to make it more visible. Our projector bulb is starting to go out, so we have a new one on order, but um, we have to get up there and put it in when it gets here. So we'll do our best to dim the lights as much as possible, but he still has to be able to read his sermon, so <laughs> hopefully you'll be able to see the, the PowerPoint. Is there a lamp? Oh, yeah, there is, actually. We can do that. Thank you. It is, and I can tell you it's wonderful to be back here. It's where I know everybody Amen. versus being in a place where I know almost no one. Um, and so, I, yeah, anyways, I'm glad to see all of you guys. I wish I had more time that I could spend here. I don't. Anyways, let's pray and we'll get started. Dear Father in heaven, we want to say thank you so much for today, for the blessings that you've given each one of us, for the gift of life. We just ask and we pray that you be with everyone here. And Father God, this, this message that you've put on my heart to share, I just hope that it sparks an interest or speaks to someone, Father God. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I get started, I'm... I want you to realize and understand this is actually not a sermon that I wrote. This is a sermon that I heard not all that long ago by a pastor named Samuel Thomas. And I've taken it and I've tried to make it my own. So you're getting an, adapt, an adaptation of something that was shared. And I loved it. But there are some things in this sermon that might be hard for some people to hear. But I can't apologize for that. I just ask and pray that you be thinking about the time and place that we actually live in. Um, it matters. Make sure that can you all see that? Okay. I want to emphasize that what you will see as I share is not meant to frighten, frighten, scare, or create any anxiety. It is intended to give you an awareness of where we are in prophecy. In the 13th chapter of Revelation, we have an expansion of what transpires in Daniel chapter 3. In Revelation 13, we see two beasts, and the land beast gives power to the wounded sea beast, the sea beast receiving power, authority, and a seat from the dragon. Now, if I were to ask you who the dragon was, who is the dragon in Revelation referring to? 
It's referring to Satan. It's referring to Lucifer. So he's the one behind the wounded sea beast giving it power. What is interesting is what transpires beginning in verses 11, ending after verse 17. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon, and he exercised all the power of the first beast before you and caused the earth and then that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performed great signs so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and he, de- and he deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by the sword and did live. And he had power to give life to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the, the image of the beast to be killed. And he causeth all, both great and small, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. And that no man might buy or sell, save he that has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So when Jim read scripture this morning, he read it from Daniel, and I'm going off script here, and I don't want to do that a lot today, but he read it in Daniel, and he read it in Revelation, and Revelation, they both, they parallel each other. When you look at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which we will be looking at today, there is a death decree contained therein, and we need to keep that in perspective. Now, I don't know what this slide that I'm going to show you might mean to you, but here it is, if I can figure out how to work this. Heretic of the week. Ellen G. White. It's from the Catholic Herald. This came from the prominent, prominent periodical, the Catholic Herald, January 20, not too many weeks ago. In fact, if you Google it, you will find it. And what is most astonishing about it, about what it conveys is this, in this particular article, is that there is an unapologetic attack on not, only, on, on not only one of the founders, but also a cornerstone of the gifts that are given to that final church. The spirit of prophecy. There are many things that are incorrect in this particular article. Nevertheless, it's quite intentional. Unfortunately, we have, a, we have been a bit remiss about accepting the fact that we are indeed in a great controversy. We're in a war, folks. We've been at war since Lucifer was kicked out of heaven and became the devil. And, and man, Adam and Eve fell in the garden. This world has been at war. We're not fighting with guns and tanks and everything under the, world, under the sun, but we are at war. Every one of us is in the trenches. We either stand on one side or the other in this war, in this conflict. According to Revelation chapter 13 and also Daniel 3, you will discover that there are only two classes of people. On the plain of Dura, there were also two classes of people, and at the very end of time, there are only Two classes of people. Those who keep the commandments of God and those who do not. There is no middle ground and there will be no universalism or opportunity for everyone to be saved, which is what so many people believe. That's just not scriptural. That is not scriptural, but it is rampant within Protestantism today. And we are part of the Protestantism, but it's not rampant within our church. Today, we have allowed ourselves to drift away from the cornerstones of what makes us who we are, but unfortunately, they haven't. 
and they being the papacy, the Catholic Church. They are still who they were a thousand plus years ago, just with a different face. If you go back in the history of Protestantism, as far as the Reformation, you'll remember that anybody who was deemed a heretic, they had a special place for, which was called burning at the stake, tossed in a dungeon, or worse. Ultimately, because many of us have never experienced that on this continent, we don't find it easy to resonate with those who might have survived the genocide in Rwanda, or in Southeast Asia, or survived or who survived, or whose ancestors survived what Stalin did to, the, to Russia in the, in the Soviet, during the Stalin years in the Soviet Union, or any such thing. So it's a little bit difficult for us to understand or for us to, to capture in our mind people being persecuted to, the, to some degree. We just don't typically have that in this country. What I want to do in this message is show you how, what in fact is happening and how it is and will be affecting us in the context of several areas, loss of liberty, loss of freedom of speech, loss of the ability to communicate a message that is direct and pointed, as we have seen historically in our evangelistic series. YouTube, how many of you watch videos on YouTube? I'm sure our younger kids do. But please understand, YouTube has already redefined what is appropriate speech in their rules. Their operational policies, if you will, and they will pull you, they will pull you, your channel, if you become two-pointed or your message is deemed hate speech. This is what they will do. We think we are the only ones who are going to get hit with that, but in fact, I'm going to show you in this message that others have already been hit. I want to take, I want to take you... Recently, Google identified us as being a people of approximately 25 million Adventists. That's roughly how many of us there are. So we get excited about that. We think, oh, man, there's 25 million of us worldwide. That is something to get excited about. But let's actually put that in context. If you use the same source, Google has identified the total global population as roughly 7.8 billion people. So by comparison, Seventh-day Adventists make up less than 0.33% of that. Tokyo in Japan has as many people living in Tokyo as we have Seventh-day Adventists around the world. That's just in one city. We are a minority within humanity and Christianity. We are few, or are we? When the California state legislature proposed to control the content of sermons recently, this was in 2019, this was just last year, it came and went without a whimper from the general Christian community. Comprehending the larger significance of the law being proposed, California state senator, Senate passed a resolution telling pastors to embrace the LGBTQ beliefs as carried by a Christian broadcasting network, September 16, 2019. Not all that many months ago. Andrea Morris of Christian Broadcasting Network reported that the resolution telling Christian clergy that they were to accept and support LGBTQ ideology, even if doing so violated their own Christian beliefs. You had to do it. This is law in the state of California. ACR 99 was introduced to Democrat State 
by Democratic State Assemblyman Evan Lowe of San Jose on June 4, 2019, as a way to gather support for LGBT identity and behavior. So whatever happened to Protestant America? What happened to it? Where is Protestant America? Why is Protestant America silent on such things? In this particular instance, they didn't see it coming. And what they did was they quickly rallied a lot of political influence and they tried to construct social guards, guardrails for the Christian community. But I have, but I have something I would like to share with you to give consideration for what has indeed happened to Protestant America. Let's consider the symptoms of their circumstances. They have forsaken, number one, the Bible. As the only rule of faith, faith in Christ alone has disintegrated as being foundational. In other words, faith in Christ alone to most of the Protestant community doesn't matter. In fact, many mainline Protestant denominations believe they are mul- there are multiple ways to salvation. But the Bible says there's only one way to salvation. Obedience to God as evidence of Christian appearance is not expected or encouraged. And Daniel and Revelation are corrected, or excuse me, are corrupt by Jesuitical, Jesuitical usurpation of the Protestant reformers' historical delineation of Scripture. Mysticism has tackled many Protestant worship services as congregations have abandoned sola scriptura in pursuit of the emotional, the supernatural, and the experience of the worship event. And finally, Protestantism is bound together also by an unscriptural, spurious Sabbath, a day of worship that is not ordained or authorized by God himself. The Apostle Paul outlines the symptoms of the last days of earth's history. He stated from 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own self, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, unforgiving, slanderers, without control, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people, we are supposed to turn away. The societal shift should not have surprised God's few. But that's not all that happened in 2019. I'm not sure you can see that that well. Major world religions and environmentalists expressed hope and promise in Pope Francis's papal encyclical Laudato Si, or care for our common home. In its, it, is an it is an encyclical letter that is in fact papal law. It connects civic and religious entities that are bound together under papal influence. It is more than a guide. It is both instructional and, direct, and a directive. It is in the implementation stages supported by a collaborative effort to create a complete ecumenical context for all religious belief systems around a, and hear this, a pantheistic philosophy. And if you're not sure what pantheistic philosophy is, let me give you a little heads up. Pantheism basically says God is in everything contained within God. So if you were to go outside and you were to worship the tree that's outside this front of this church and bow down to it, you are in essence bowing down to God because God's essence is contained within the tree. And so therefore it's okay to do that. Or if you want to go outside and when the flowers come up in the springtime, you want to bow down to the flowers, you're in essence, it's okay because you're worshiping God because, you're, because God... No, 
God said not to do that. But that's what pantheistic philosophy is all about. Within 184 pages of his document, Pope Francis introduced the readers to the gospel of creation. As he defines it in chapter 2 of this document, he outlines a method and manner for achieving environmental recovery through what he terms respecting the laws of nature, which is in direct connection to Thomas Aquinas, who is a Catholic theologian. Pope Francis states in Laodicea, Ladonta C. This responsibility for God's earth means that human beings endowed with intelligence must respect the laws of nature. Along these same lines, rest on the seventh day is meant not only for human beings, but also that your ox and your donkey may have a rest. And I ask you which seventh day. There's a reason I ask you which seventh day. He further states, all it takes is one good person to restore hope. The biblical tradition, key word here, tradition, clearly shows that this renewal entails recovering and respecting the rhythms described in nature by the hand of the Creator. Pope John Paul II said this, there wasn't a creation. He said that evolution had its place. I was working at a bakery when I actually read that. It was front-page news almost 20-plus years ago when I worked at a bakery. That was front-page news. Pope John Paul II said, hey, creation actually happened through the process of evolution. We don't buy that at all, but that was front-page news. But now you have a different pope saying, uh, we're going to do something different, and they're they're in conflict with one another. So let's go back to what Pope Francis says. We see this, for example, in the law of the Sabbath, and I ask you, which Sabbath? On the seventh day, again, which seventh day? God rested from all his work. He commanded Israel to set aside each seventh day as a day of rest, a Sabbath, a Sabbath. Protestantism cannot see the agenda embedded in the Ladonta Sea through prophetic lenses. Why? Because contemporary Protestantism has abandoned the core values of the Reformation. They are now peddlers of a false gospel, teaching the doctrine of a universal salvation and a millennium of peace here on earth. But God's few understand what has transpired. They comprehend the issues that are rapidly coalescing everywhere. So, here's a slide here. Look at this. Using hate labels to demonize Christians. The Southern Poverty Law Center put this Christian ministry on par with the Ku Klux Klan. What is this ministry? Have we ever heard of Coral Ridge Ministries? Anybody ever heard of that? If you listen to Christian radio... This is an Adventist Christian radio, but if you listen to Christian radio, Coral Ridge Ministries has been played on there for years. But they're now on par with the KKK. They're considered a hate group. And here's why. It's part of the legacy of Dr. D. James Kennedy of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. They put this ministry on the list of hate groups in America. Why? The legal battle is ongoing because this ministry stands for traditional marriage, and against radical parts of the LGBTQ agenda. They are now labeled a hate group. What else happened last year? I don't know if you guys realize what's coming, but it's coming, and it's coming rather quickly. On September 12, 2019, Pope Francis announced the initiative inviting global leaders, heads of state, 
business leaders, academics, and sports personalities from around the world to Rome for a meeting on May 14, 2020. That's only about two, little over two months away, guys. This is what's going on. Why is this significant? Well, let's understand what the theme is. Reinventing the Global Education Alliance. Global means worldwide, folks. It's, a, it's purpose, re-educating the world to a new perspective in environmental stewardship. There is a connection to the Ladante Sea. His goal, these are the words. This is what the Pope's goal is. Unifications of all people and religions. Everything all unified together in one common. Instead of everyone being separate. Instead of everyone believing solely what's here in Scripture. You believe what we tell you to, nothing more. That's the goal of that meeting in May, which isn't much more than two months away. When we look at these things collectively, God, God's few should be able to take all of this, the pieces of the news and put all of this in perspective. We ought to be able to see what's happening, why it's happening, and not become intimidated. We should not be terrified nor feel uneasy. Now is not the time to lose confidence in the promise. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Unless we know these things, unless we actually avail ourselves of the opportunity to know these things, we are actually blind to what is transpiring and the rapid rate at which they are transpiring. If we go through life and think that we should never have to look at what's happening in the news, we are blind to what's actually happening in this world. We need to be aware of what's happening in this world. We need to be aware of the time in which we are living so that we can be prepared and we can help prepare other people. Unless we know these things, unless we actually avail ourselves of the opportunity to know these things, we are actually blind to what is transpiring. So what has happened to Protestant ministers that we don't hear them speaking about these developments in prophetic context? What does this mean about the current state of Protestantism? I don't know if you guys can see that one that well, and that's okay. Dr. Ronald Cook, president of, of Breckbuild College, Bible College in Virginia, poses the answer in this book. The name of this book is The Deprotestizing the, the the, De of America, and he writes it this way. In many ways, Vatican II became a watershed council. Before it, there had been all kinds of controversy between the Protestant church, the Protestant Bible believers, and their humanistic and Jesuitical opponents. The majority of Protestants in North America were still looked upon as conservative in their beliefs. But after Vatican II, this was no longer the case. He continues, the new evangelicals began to actually agree with the Jesuits. By the way, so you understand, this author, he's not an Adventist. The old, the, the old conservative way of trying to reach people was too rigid. It was not reaching people fast enough. World population was outstripping church growth. There are numerous theories on what has happened to Protestantism. Academics and research groups are saturated with statistical data and a vain attempt to categorize and specify the erosion of biblical appearance, but God's few understand what's happening in the world and the church today. Daniel 12.10 says, Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise they shall understand. The wisdom spoken of, Dan, of by Daniel is, is expanded by the spirit of prophecy. Listen to what is recorded there. Society is now in a state of demoralization, and this will ripen until the nations become as lawless, as corrupt, 
as were the inhabitants of the world before the flood. Like the antediluvians, they were all destroyed in the flood. The de- she also writes, the, degener- the, de- the degradation that is found in the world today is largely due to the fact that the Bible, the Bible, folks, is no longer exerts a controlling influence upon the minds of men. It has become fashionable to doubt what God has written here between the pages of this book. This is a problem. The law of God has, made, has been made void to those in sacred office. And what can, be expected of, what can be expected of those who have listened to their sophistry and error? What can be expected of the youth who have come under the influence of those who have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel? It's no wonder that the Bible has come, has come to be so lightly regarded. My brothers and sisters, Daniel wrote that, that the wise will understand. So here's my rhetorical question. Do we actually understand ourselves? That's a thought question. And if we do, who will light the torch of truth and tell others? Isn't that what our job is supposed to be? Who will be the salt Christ spoke about? Who is to do the work of the redemption of the remnant spoken of in Revelation 12, 17? It is, it is in the book of Revelation where Christ calls his final representatives to the world. A remnant. But actually, what is a remnant? A working definition for remnant a remainder or a, res- or a residu- residual or final portion. So to be identified as remnant of, of anything, there must be a framework. Who are the remnant and what do they do? Why and when are they the remnant? Scripture reveals a more comprehensive view of the remnant in the framework of typology. So in the book of Daniel, we can see what God's remnant looks like and how they reveal Christ to the world. The Bible records a solemn event in Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar had a huge golden image like the one in his dream built and put on the plain of Dura. He called together all the important people in his kingdom and he commanded them all to fall down and worship the image when the musicians played before it. When the music played, three Jews which served in his court did not fall down to worship the image. He was furious and had them brought before him to give them a second chance and guys, I could read this to you, but I'm just going to, I'm summarizing it. He told them, if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? They refused the second opportunity given to them, saying, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer thee in this matter. If it, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thine hand. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Nebuchadnezzar was more angry than ever and he commanded that they should heat the furnace seven times hotter than it was usually heated. And he commanded the most mighty men in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Once they fell bound in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace, the king was astonished as he looked into the furnace and said to his counselors, "Uh, Did we not cast three men into the midst of that fire? They answered and said unto the king, Oh, yeah, you did. True, you did. Look, he answered, look, I, I see four walking in the midst of the fire. And they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. The king then called them from the furnace, and everyone saw that they were unharmed and unchanged by the fire. These men in the book of Daniel 
They are a type of the remnant. Throughout Scripture, the remnant decidedly belonged to Christ and Christ alone. These three young men are a type of the remnant of Bible prophecy. Throughout Daniel's record, these men exemplified stalwart characters, a resistance to temptation, abstinence, and unswavering loyalty to Christ. If you study carefully and closely, the Bible record documents their commitment to health reform. This is all in the book of Daniel. These are what these three men were willing to do. Health reform, dress reform, church reform, worship reform, and social reform. In Daniel, they are identified by individual appearance, adherence, but in Revelation, they are a corporate group defined by characteristics. So there are two things. Revelation defines the remnant as a corporate group. Dr. Garrett Hosel wrote this description about the remnant. This is what he left us. Since there is not another religious body today outside of the Seventh-day Adventist which uniquely and specifically have the characteristics of the remnant of faith and carries their mark, it follows that Adventists, as they meet all the aspects of the remnant, are the final remnant of faith of the end of time. He continues, This does not mean that there are no other Christians who lived, temp- who lived temporarily on the basis of limited lights. It doesn't mean that. They, are, they too are children of God, but until they join the commandment-keeping faith of Jesus holding remnant... Not holy remnant, holding, those holding on to the faith of Jesus. They are not part of the final remnant. In the course of time, all children of God, whether in Christian churches or non-Christian religions, who listen to the Spirit of God and follow His wooings will be drawn by the faithful global proclamation of the everlasting gospel into the visible community of the final remnant of faith, which is even now proclaimed this message with power and conviction. This message is proclaimed. It's proclaimed by our church. Worldwide, not just in a few places here and there. It's a worldwide message. Unfortunately, many of us in the remnant church have desired to lump all Christians, this is what we do, guys, in a bowl, ignoring denominational and biblical distinctions, mixing all Protestants in a type of Christian stew. But Scripture does not support this humanistic view. The Bible defines the faithful of God as a movement throughout biblical history, and they are always defined by divinely ordered specific values and principles. Those who compromise, who, excuse me, who comprise a remnant, remnant are, singular, are singled out in Scripture as distinctive and unique. Our social biases and cultural inclinations have driven us to pursue common ground when our righteous God is commanding His church to stand on holy ground. We're always trying to find, well, what do we have in common? We're not supposed to have anything in common with the world. But yet we tend to think that's what we're supposed to do. We've got to reach them, so we've got to do what they're doing. No, no. Jesus wasn't doing what everyone else was doing when he was here on earth. He didn't walk to the beat of everybody else. He walked to what his Father in heaven told him he needed to do. That's what he did. There is a difference between those who obey God according to Scripture and those who do not. There is a huge difference. Revelation identifies the remnant by these characteristics. Listen closely as we consider these collective passages from Revelation chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and Revelation chapter 14, verses 4, 5, and 12. One of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence they came, and whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, 
These are they which came out of great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are they which are now are not defiled with women, which in Revelation, they're den- women are identified as churches. So these are false churches, for they are virgins, prophetically and, typo- and typo- typologically. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and unto the Lamb, and in their mouths was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Yet within the group identified as a remnant, a corporate remnant, there is a distinctive call to each one of us individually. Yes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were individually on that plain of Dura, and that was in Daniel. Now it's a corporate call in the book of Revelation, but corporately we're still individuals. We are not one whole body. Does that mean the whole church? Does it, were all the Jews ready when Christ came? Are they all going to be saved at the end? And I can tell you they're not. They're just not. For Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael proved that salvation is an individual matter. Their passionate dedication to God was displayed in their unflinching focus, even in the face of death. They didn't care if they died. Where are we at? In that kind of... They were unfettered by human associates. They were not confined by family relations. They didn't care who was there. They were unencumbered by employee loyalty. They were undeterred by military presence and unaffected by legislative enactments. Each one of us must make a decision to belong to the remnant, corporately and individually. Clifford Goldstein makes this profound observation in his book, The Remnant, when he says this. This is from the book, The Remnant. Never mind that many members are not following that light. This is talking about our church. They did not in Israel. Or that these truths aren't sanctifying many. They did not in Israel. Or that these truths are not appreciated. They weren't appreciated in Israel. Or that the nasty and unconverted give the message a bad name at every turn. They did in Israel as well. What's crucial is that the Seventh-day Adventist church, like ancient Israel, has been given far more light than any other faith. And that light alone gives it corporate remnant status. When we study the lives of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, we learn profound lessons about what it takes to be part of the remnant. The remnant are an odd community or commodity in the context of religious bodies. That's something we just don't fit. The remnant are an anomaly to the scripturally uninformed and are strange to the worldly. Nebuchadnezzar thought so. And there are three points I want to share with you before I do. But before I do, I want to remind you that that, that we would be naive to think that Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael were the only Jews on the plain of Dura. They weren't. There were others brought from Israel to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court that would have been there as well. Those three men may have had extended family and friends on that plain. Have you ever thought about that? Most of us don't think all we ever think about are those three men and what they stood for. But there were other Jews on that plain, on that plain and, there were, and the, most of them were related Remember, Nebuchadnezzar brought royalty from Jerusalem. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were part of Israelite royalty. So there was a lot more than just those three that were part of the royal lineage that were brought. So you're there. Can you put yourself in their place? 
Is it possible there was a cousin or relative saying, man, you better get yourself down here. Don't you see the furnace over there burning? Or as an uncle, you may have shouted out, don't be foolish. Bow, we can survive this. Jehovah will understand. It's okay. The reality is Jehovah would not have understood, and he doesn't understand today. But this is what we tend to do. We tend to bow, when we, and we shouldn't. Here's a story, and I'm going to step away from my notes briefly because I think I can tell it without looking at my notes. The, pers- the pastor that shared this story, this is actually an elder in his church, an elder in his church that works for UPS. Now, UPS... Is it, is it just a local corporation or is it a worldwide corporation? What do you guys think? It's a worldwide corporation, okay? But UPS is changing their work week, so their work week runs from Monday through Saturday. That's their work week now, okay? So bear with me. It's a global organization, but let me say this again in case you missed it. They are moving their work week from Monday to Saturday, which automatically makes Sunday a seventh day. Okay? And you might sit there and go, wait a minute, that does not. But the reality, I, can, I remember when I lived in Germany, and we used to find calendars printed in Germany that the seventh day of the week by calendar, by the calendar was published, was actually Sunday, and Monday was the first day of the week. That was 30-plus years ago. And those calendars are popping up more and more and more all over other places, not so much in this country, but in other places around the world. So remember, UPS is a global organization, okay? Don't think that this is not intentional, that they're moving their, their work week. This is what transpired in the conversation with the, with the leadership for this elder, and it gave this testimony between UPS and this, this elder, this Adventist. This is what transpired, and this only happened a few weeks ago. This is actually within probably three or four weeks The elder said, I want my church family to pray for me. This is what is happening. This is the new structure. They're going to to it immediately, and everybody must work six days a week. They have no choice. This is what's happening. UPS is a pretty big company. But let's get deeper into the testimony. He not only tells us that, he also says that in the midst of the conversation, his supervisor, so this guy, this Adventist that works for UPS, is now being told he has to work from Monday to Saturday and has to work Saturday. And in the conversation with his supervisor, his supervisor looks at him and said, you know what? He said, I, I want you to know that I'm, I'm going to work with you. I'm going to work with you. And there's a reason I want to work with you. I know you're a Seventh-day Adventist and I'm going to go to work for you so you don't have to have, you don't have to work on Saturday and that you can have it off. But he said, I want you to know, out of all the Seventh-day Adventists we have had working for UPS, You are the only one who has ever honored your Sabbath day. I can tell you, and and I'm going to tell you the same thing that was told us. I hear people saying amen, because I can tell you when when I heard this preach and the whole church said amen, and the pastor was like, why in the world are you saying amen? That's sad that we would sit there and say only one Adventist out of all the Adventists that have ever worked for UPS, only one of them was willing to actually stand up for what he believed Everyone else stood there and they bowed like every other Jew on the plain of Dura. We should be ashamed of that as an Adventist. We shouldn't be, yeah, be, a, th- be amen for the fact that the guy stood up for what he believed. But what does that say about the rest of us? What does it say? 
I call that cultural Adventism when we bow like everybody else. It's what it is. We want to live like an Adventist, but we don't want to actually do what God says in his word. There is a huge, huge difference. There are three things Nebuchadnezzar could not understand about the three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. By the way, remember, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were young men. They were young people. They weren't that old. They were a whole lot younger than I was. They were probably Gage's age, about the age of Gage, something like that. Okay? So, every, for, so for everyone who says you have to do tricks and treats to keep young people in the church, remember, that's just not the case. Something good must have happened in their homes that they were raised in. Keep that in mind. The first thing Nebuchadnezzar could not comprehend was that even though he had brought the young men by force to Babylon to serve there, they had determined within their hearts not to become Babylonian. They lived through the strength of Christ. The gold of the Babylonians did not impress them. Babylonian power and opulence did not entice them. It was a seductive place for the more unsophisticated Judeans as they had not seen such prosperity and possibility since the days of Solomon. And they became absorbed with all Babylon had to offer them. But not so for these boys. They belonged to Jesus and they they defied the influence of culture and paganism. They said, no way. This is who we are. You can take us to the world, but the world's not going to become a part of who we are. It's not going to happen. The second thing Nebuchadnezzar could not understand was how he had changed their names without being able to change their character. Realize Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, they were named for Babylonian gods. That's who they were named for. They were renamed. Keep that in mind. Every time those boys stepped out of their prayer closets, they knew who they were and whose they were. They were in Babylon, but Babylon was not in them. They had prayed and asked for the kind of stalwart and committed heart that only the Savior could give. His mind, his convictions, his desires, his thoughts, his outlooks, his values, his vision was poured into them. Every day they stepped into their positions of leadership and responsibility. They had single They had a single objective, to live completely sold out for God. They were captives, yet they were free. They were in bondage, yet they were unrestricted in faith. They lived the Apostle Paul's declaration. Who shall separate us from the love of Jesus? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the mindset that these three Jews had. Thirdly, Nebuchadnezzar could not comprehend how he had moved Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael away from the sanctuary. But he could not erase the significance of the sanctuary out of them. Remember, folks, the sanctuary that we believe in, the whole service points to Jesus. That is what it does. And they knew that. 
They knew the significance of the Shekinah glory it evidenced over the mercy seat above the Ark of the Testament, where the tables of the covenant, the Ten Commandments were. They knew it. They knew the sanctuary's importance in history and in the final conflict and position and relationship to their personal salvation. They knew it. They know serving Jesus was not cultural nor relational. They knew obedience was not circumstantial, but transcended location and environment. Therefore, they would not succumb to pressure. That would not, they would not relinquish their convictions. The more civil and religious pressure was applied, the more determined they were to live for Jesus. And as a result, they resisted the pressures of unbiblical values, unbiblical diet, and unbiblical worship. Dr. Norman McNulty parallels Daniel 3 in, in, with Revelation 13 in his commentary on the book of Daniel, Practical Living in the Judgment Hour, which is a new release from Remnant Publications. This is what it says on page 48. The war raged on the remnant is seen in Revelation 13 with the issue of worship and the image of the beast. Ancient Babylon, specifically King Nebuchadnezzar, manifested the same wrath toward the faithful remnant of God's people in Daniel 3 by ordering that the three Hebrews be killed, just as, they will, just as there will be a death decree in Revelation 13. This is the same, one in the same. Placed upon, so there will be a death decree in Revelation 13 placed upon those who do not worship the image or receive the mark of the beast. When Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael were thrown into the furnace of destruction, they had proven their faith in Christ Jesus, then may, in Christ. Jesus then made himself personally responsible for their outcome. When other Hebrew exiles were given way to ungodly social pressures, biblically forbidden marriages, dietary practices, unsanctified dress and culture, demonically influenced and controlled entertainment, and pagan worship practices, practices of Babylon, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael stood firm. When they were dumped in the furnace of death, Jesus hit the pause button of his celestial command center. He redirected his gaze to the furnace, stopped the singing of the angelic choir, suspended his heavenly schedule, cleared his daily routine, and appeared in their midst. When they were in trouble, Jesus inserted himself in the deliverance plan. I personally believe the reason we hear nothing more about them after that time was that they were sealed. And they had proven faithful even unto death. So my brothers and sisters, remember that living for Jesus requires standing alone. Living for Jesus requires detaching from the world. Living for Jesus requires boldness and unshakable faith. Living for Jesus requires trusting him with everything we have. I want to close with this quote from Prophets and Kings, page 513. It says this. As in the days of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so in the closing period of earth's history, the Lord will work mightily in behalf of those who stand steadfastly for the right. He who walked with Hebrew worthies in the fiery furnace will be with his followers wherever they are. His abiding presence will comfort and sustain. In the midst of the time of trouble, trouble such as not been seen since there was a nation, his chosen ones will stand unmoved. Angels that excel in strength will protect them. And in their behalf, Jehovah will reveal himself as a God of gods, able to save to the uttermost those who have put their trust in him. I believe that it's time for us to take our relationship with Jesus super serious. I want to challenge you to, you to do this. We started with something you should have, we started with something that should have startled but not surprised you. 
I'm going to go back to it. It's still there. Heretic of the Week, Ellen G. White, from the Catholic Herald of this year. It's an interesting read, and if, if you doubt me, Google, put that in Google, Heretic of the Week, and this is what will come up, and click on the article and read it. It's an eye-opener. Okay? I want to leave you with a thought question, and here it is. If she's a heretic, if she's a heretic, Sister White, what does that make people who believe in her? What does it make? I believe in her. I know there's people out here that believe in her, and I hope every one of you do. What does it make us if we believe in her? We think that we've got a lot of time that we do not have. It's a shot across the proverbial bow. There are other things that I could have shown you that I have pulled from their sources about us. They, being the papal church, the Catholic church, they are not confused. However, we are. We are the ones that are confused. We think that, we have, we think that they, they have changed, but they have not changed. Ellen White told us in the book, The Great Controversy, that they cannot change. I want you to think about these words. Am I willing to put it all on the line for Jesus? Am I willing? That's a tough question. And we will quickly answer yes, but our, but our ability to fulfill it is challenging. So I would ask you to pray and think about what you need in your life from the Lord today so that you can stand for Jesus come what may and what you need in our lives, all of us, for each one of us to be part of the remnant. Because the remnant is all that's going to make it through. It isn't going to be everyone, even though there's a lot of people that believe there is. That is just not. If that was the case, and let me ask this question, if that was really the case, then there should have been a whole lot more people that were on that ark in Noah's day instead of just eight. The majority of the world died because they refused to accept the message that was given them by Noah. Think about that today. Just think about it. At this time, I have nothing more to share. That's it. So if we can stand and we can sing our closing hymn, number 625, that'll be good.
Folks, we don't have anything to be afraid of. We really don't. As long as we know in whom we believe and we hold to that like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's what we need to remember. They're the picture of the remnant. Let us study them. Lord, I ask and I pray that you be with everyone here this day. I hope that they gain something from what was shared with them, Father God. And just... Look to you and realize that we need to be committed to you completely. We don't want to be like everyone else that was on that plane of Dura. We want to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's, those are the people that we want to reflect. People that were committed to you no matter what. I just ask and I pray, Father God, that you be with everyone today as they leave and go to their home. Pour out your love upon them, Father God, in Jesus' precious, wonderful name. Amen.